because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Okay, everyone ready? Can I get a thumbs up? Okay, cool. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right, so just before we get started, I'm just going to pray one more time that... Uh, um, that we can know and love the Lord from studying him in this book, and then we'll, we'll get started, so bow with me. Um, thank you, Lord, for the time that we have. Thank you so much for the blessing of your son. Thank you for um, being able to know you through your word and to know you through the power that you have um, performed in our hearts, the transformation you've brought to our lives. We pray that as we study through the book of Colossians, we might know you more and love you more, and that we may be appreciative of all of the ways that um, you're working, uh, not just in our lives and in our church, but in the whole world, Lord. In the whole world, you are doing uh, such a marvelous work through your gospel and bringing so many more people um, to a knowledge of your truth. And we just pray that we would not only know that, but we would love um, who you are and what you are doing. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray you would bless it and keep it holy in your name and in your sight. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Will. So, uh, I, I know most of you guys know me pretty good so far, and one thing that I think a lot of you guys know about me is that uh, I really like movies. I really like uh, old movies, and I really like uh, a lot of some of the movies that are uh, coming out these days, but um, one of the things, as someone who's watched a lot of movies, that's been fascinating to me is um, how quickly technology has developed to make uh, crazier and crazier stories seem more and more lifelike or more and more uh, realistic. Um, you guys probably know the technology is CGI for the most part, and in really just a matter of a couple of decades, we went um, from using tiny little miniatures of someone kind of moving something in the air like this to really feeling, if you kind of take your brain off of your life and your circumstances, to literally feel like you're in space or on another planet or in another world or whatever it is that a movie wants you to do. And sometimes a movie doesn't even just want to use that kind of technology to make you feel like you're somewhere crazy, um, but really just to get around old problems that they used to have in filmmaking. Uh, so for example, one problem might be uh, if you were directing a movie and your lead actor or actress had to both play themselves and play a younger version of themselves, sometimes they'd have to put on uh, makeup or hire someone who kind of looked like the actor or actress but didn't really um, to play the younger self. 
Um, nowadays, you don't even need that at all. You can actually just use technology. And uh, one of the ways they do that is uh, through calling uh, um, a form of CGI de-aging, where they can take an older actor and they can use CGI to change their face and make them a younger version of themselves. Um, and you guys might not actually even know how often they tend to do this because um, you might not know what an older actor or actress looks like now, where they actually don't look like their younger selves. They actually are much, much older than they seem in the movie, but only people who have seen their older movies would actually know what they looked like. But the technology is literally that convincing. It's actually so convincing now that um, people are starting to not only get a little nervous about it, but they're starting to ask bigger ethical questions about how this technology should be used. And you'd be curious about um, who is asking those kinds of questions. Uh, one of the technologies that's kind of come from this is uh, called deep faking. Maybe you guys have heard about this. It's, it's not like de-aging where you're making the same person's face younger. It's taking someone totally different's face onto someone else's face and using it to make it seem like someone who isn't there really there. And it's become so convincing um, that even the highest and most powerful governments in the world are starting to wonder how much money they should be throwing at trying to determine what videos are real and what videos aren't. Um, I have one example of this I read in a, in a news story this week, and I just wanted to read you some of the paragraphs so you know just how worried some people are about this kind of technology. For the moment at least, the majority of deepfakes online are clearly flagged as such and they're not intended to fool anyone. They're usually being played for laughs, for example, putting Nicolas Cage in every single movie ever produced. But while there's been no confirmed case of anyone trying to pass them off as real, one case has been questioned. No one knows what, what to make of a video of Gabon, that's a country in Africa, their president, Ali Bongo who has been absent from the public eye for some time, leading to speculation about his health. But a New Year's video address was supposed to lay doubts to rest and ended up backfiring due to opposition claims that it was actually a deep fake, allegations that possibly played a role in provoking an attempted military coup. The incident shows that the simple fact that deep fakes now exist means that any video that looks slightly odd can be called into question and create doubt. It's a fear that's been taken seriously enough that the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency is investing in research into how to detect fakes while both China and the US are now discussing new legislation. If I could sum all that up for you very simply, it'd be this. Not even because a video has been proved to be fake, but just the fact that any video could be faked is so nerve-wracking for people that people are investing millions of dollars into quote-unquote fighting doubt, and whole countries are having military uprisings because of this. What I want to present to you guys is there's a sense of paranoia in our world that is at a new high with something like this. And we know it's not really because technology is so good, it's because people are always prone to doubt. There's something very, very easy in this technology to pull out something from our hearts that's already existed, which is people questioning our reality. People questioning what is true, people questioning what is right, and people questioning what is real. Now, this isn't just in something like using technology to change somebody. It's even noticeable in having regular conversations with people. 
You could meet a stranger and it could be much more difficult to have a normal conversation with them because even basic truths that many people agreed on 10 years ago are now in doubt. And that's because no matter where you go, people are living in different realities. One of the responses, and even responses I've had from many of you guys, is a worry about knowing about apologetics or a worry about knowing about evangelism. These are real things because there's so many out ideas that are out there that can help you understand what kind of reality people are living in. But the real reality, the, the truth of being a Christian, is that the most important thing for you to do is not try to learn every single truth out there, but rather, by God's grace, to confirm the truths that you know Dig deep into them and understand with a new sense of profoundness how deeply important they are and why they're important. And I think as we study the very first section of Colossians here in verses 3 to verse 8, you guys will see that. What Paul really wants to do as he does this introduction to his letter about what they need to know is true he doesn't actually give any new information. What he really does is he looks at the truths that they know about the gospel and he confirms them the, to the Colossians. He reiterates them to them and he says, this is what's true, this is what's right, and you can be rest assured that you have what is right. And as we go through that, I want to also help explain to you why that matters to us now too. So if you want a sentence or a proposition statement, something to sum up, Everything that we're looking at today, this is the sentence. In this section, we want to look at two assurances of the true gospel. Two assurances of the true gospel. And if you see those, true assurance, uh, those two assurances of the true gospel, it will build upon your gratitude for the gospel. If you knew these things, they will confirm to your heart in a new and profound way just how good it is to rest in them. So I want to point out two things in these texts to help you be assured of what is the true gospel. And the first one of that is understanding what it means to have a real response to the gospel. Number one is a real response to the gospel. And we can see the response of the Colossians to the gospel in verse 3, 4, and 5, which says this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Faith, love, and hope. Paul mentions faith, love, and hope because these are the top three evidences that he wants to bring forward for them that they have responded to the true gospel. This is the kind of formula that in most of Paul's letters he ends up using. And what you need to notice is not just all of these qualities, but how they're all being mentioned and what kind of arrangement that Paul is bringing them out in. Even the order that he's using is very serious and super helpful and encouraging to know what Paul is really getting at in what is contained in the true gospel. But before we talk about arrangement, we just need to talk about each one of those very, very simply and point out some of the things Paul is trying to point out in them. So number one is faith. Verse 4 says that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith. Now, it's probably not very controversial to you to know that faith is kind of essential to the gospel. It's an important thing because it's the first action. It's the first real thing that you do when you respond to the gospel. But Paul while he doesn't explain a whole definition of the gospel, he does mention one thing that's very true and very important about faith, 
which is that faith isn't just faith because it's there. As one man said, salvation doesn't come from believing in belief. The point that Paul is making here is that faith isn't just valid because of its existence. Because the reality is you and everyone around you is believing in something. And that belief is their expression of what their ultimate validation and truth about all of life is. So basically faith, if it's looking in a certain direction, it means that it can be unvalid or wrong if it's looking in the wrong direction. And what Paul does for his audience is explains to them that their faith is genuine because it's looking in the right direction. Verse 3 says, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is confirming the Colossians have a genuine faith in the genuine gospel because it's directed in the right direction. It's directed at Christ Jesus. Faith is always pointing to ultimate trust. And what Paul is saying that ultimately all of their trust is in Christ Jesus. As Hebrews 11.1 1 says that we believe in faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. He sees that the Colossians' conviction is though they have not seen Christ, they have every reason to believe in Christ and to look to him in faith. But notice again, the way that Paul is bringing out this is not saying, I'm very thankful to you, Colossians, because you were smart enough to believe the gospel. Paul wants to make a profound point about what faith is, and what faithfulness is, is not thanking a person for their faith, but thanking God for giving faith to that person. Notice in verse 3 that he thanks God for their faith. He does not thank them, he thanks God that God has given them faith. And again, the whole Bible is going to confirm that the reality is that even your belief in Christ is a gift from Christ. Jesus himself says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's God's power that draws somebody out of the world and points them towards Christ that they may then believe in Christ. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus also says this to Peter. Peter, welling up with encouragement about being in the faith, tells Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. And instead of congratulating Peter for being smart enough to see this, he actually tells him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Paul wants to express it in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, as even more profound by saying this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. So while Paul is very encouraged looking at the Colossians, his thankfulness ultimately for their faith being genuine is not because they were smart enough or courageous enough to look at the gospel, or rather, God brought the gospel to them and gave them a heart that could respond in faith to the gospel. But then he moves on from there to say, it's not just your faith that's genuine, but also what your faith has produced. And what your faith has produced is love. Verse 4 continues by saying, we thank God always when we pray for you, since you have love for all the saints. Now saying, I believe Jesus, is obviously essential in the gospel, but what is also essential in the gospel is having love for other believers. The Apostle John in 1 John makes this very, very serious for the people by some of the words he uses in connecting belief in Christ to love for other people. He says in 1 John 3.10 that we know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. And 1 John 
4.20, he says again, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, let me make this very, very clear about what those verses are saying about love. He's not saying that love makes you a believer. Love doesn't make you a Christian. But what he's saying is that love happens because you're a Christian. Something happens to you first, the same power that worked faith in your hearts, then works out love in your hearts. Your love doesn't prove you're a Christian, but if love comes out of you, it gives you the assurance that you were already a Christian. Do you see the difference between those two things that Paul is bringing out in what it means to be a genuine believer in the faith? You can think about it this way. If you know anything about gardening, then you'll know that flowers can't be put in a dark room and suddenly bloom petals all over the place. They need to be out in the sun and be directed into the sun, and as a result of revealing uh, that light to them and that brightness, they respond by opening their petals and pushing them out in all directions. And the same is supposed to be true of a believer. Your thankfulness comes because you've been pointed in the right direction, and as a result of that light and that source, you then respond by blooming out in love for the saints around you. Paul tries to make that point about how the source of their faith and the source of their love come from the same source when he says in Colossians 1.8, at the end of our section, that they have love in the Spirit. The same source that gave them faith, that directed them to the gospel, is the same source that directed them to pour out love. As Romans 5.5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What Paul is trying to explain is that all of faith is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same power, the Holy Spirit, that directed you to Christ is the same power that will naturally pour out love in your hearts. And Paul is mentioning that the Colossian Christians have both because they heard the real gospel and have responded rightly. They have faith in the right direction and that has naturally produced love, which is also right. And then Paul mentions a third thing. He says in verse 5 that they have hope. And that hope is really important to look at because, verse 5, of the because. Notice that he doesn't say you have love or you have faith, but he says because of the hope. And that because is essential because it changes us away from looking at each one as an individual fruit of the Spirit, but rather as faith and love having one original source, which is hope. The reality is they have a hope that leads to a faith that leads to love. And so because of that, we need to know why this hope is so important. You guys probably remember a little bit about hope, potentially, because of the apologetic series that we did in 1 Peter. And the main verse that was in the center of that section that's really essential to that was 1 Peter 3.15. That's the verse that says that Christians are to always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Hope is essential to Christianity. It's something that is reasonable, according to Peter. What Peter is saying that you have hope because it is a reasonable hope. You don't have a hopeful attitude because you are looking in the right direction. It's that you have reasons that continually make you look in the right direction. And what Peter responds in 1 Peter 3 is he says, you don't have some hope or you don't have a hope, but you have the hope. And the hope is Christ Jesus. 
And what Paul is taking in the same logic as Peter is explaining to them why Christ is described as the only hope. And the reason he is the only hope is because he is the only sure, secure, and unbreakable hope. He's a hope that cannot change, and he is a hope that is impossible to lose. That's the difference with the hope that's found in Christ. And the reason he explains that, the reason we know that, is the way Paul talks about this hope in verse 5. He calls it a hope laid up for you in heaven. That's essential. It is a hope looked up, laid up for you in heaven. Now, when he says laid up for you, what he's talking about is to reserve something, to have a reservation in something. Now, if you have a reservation, you probably know if you reserved a spot at a restaurant, what that means is as you're on your way to the restaurant, you're not going to lose your place in line. Now, the same kind of thing is applying to the Christian. As you are on your way to heaven, as every single day you get closer and closer to death, heaven is not a reality you're constantly holding on to and hoping you do not lose. It is reserved for you. It is impossible to lose. And the more you learn about that unlosable, unbreakable hope, the more confidence you have as you go forward. You can see that what he's really trying to bring out is totally against a works-based theology. It is totally against your assurance being found in all the things you are doing, but rather all of the things that Christ has done that will never change the reality of you being in the Christian faith. Notice how different this is from having a kind of attitude of hope. When we talk about hope, we say, I really hope something will happen, or I hope this or that will be my future. And what we're really talking about is wishing. We don't really have a reality that we know is going to happen in the future or something that we know we're going to have. It's just our attitude. That is not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about if you have a right attitude towards the gospel, then you're going to do fine. What he's talking about is this hope is something totally outside of you. And because it's outside of you, it's not by your own power that it stays the way it is. It stays the way it is because of God's power, not because of our power. And therefore, this hope, if you hold on to it, Christ will make sure that you stay on to it. It is unbreakable and unlosable, and that is such a good reality that so many other authors in Scripture talk about the same reality. In 1 Peter 1.4, for example, Peter calls Jesus Christ a living hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And because of that, we therefore have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus says the same thing in John 14.2 when he explains to his disciples as he is leaving this world that in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to reserve a place for you? And Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 and 19 says the exact same thing. When the author there says that we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us because it is a sure and steadfast anchor. Think about the purpose of an anchor in a regular ship. A ship would be moving to and fro and right and left and in all sorts of directions in a storm if it wasn't anchored to the ocean floor. But that anchor makes all the difference. It takes away from the pressure of a ship trying to control itself and the anchor to the ocean floor being the support to control the ship. 
And the same thing is true of a Christian. Though we may be pushed and pulled by different things in this world, our place in heaven is not moved because Christ can be trusted to fix our reality, our future reality in heaven. Because the ocean floor is firm and secure and Christ has anchored us to that floor, there is no way you can lose the reality that you are headed towards hope. You can see how this is such a different truth than anything that the world is going to offer us. Because the reality is that every time someone is explaining what they believe in or what they hold on to, they are trying to explain a hope. They are trying to give you a reality that you can rest in and then make sense of this world. And that's something every single human does because all of us are made in the image of God. And every single one of us know that there is more to this world than it seems. And there is a depth and a reality to it. And that's because we bear Christ's image. We bear God's image. But the problem is that that doesn't naturally make you a Christian. But what it does is it makes you start to look for those deeper meanings, those deeper hopes. And as you go testing hope after hope after hope, and as more and more things fail to give you real purpose and real meaning in this world, then things can go very, very bad very, very quickly. The reason that happens is because people who don't have hope, not just an attitude of hope, but people who don't have a hope that can actually hold them to this world, don't really find much value in this world at all. I was very surprised this week just reading some statistics that after unintentional injury, the highest cause of death in the USA for people that are aged 10 to 34 is suicide. 10 to 34. 10 to 34 is the ages of people who are not only maturing, but they're establishing all of the things that they believe in. 10 to 34 is all of the parts in the world where you are figuring out who you are. And if suicide is that high on the list, then there's clearly a connection to people trying to find purpose and finding so little purpose in this world that they don't even want to be in this world at all. And the Bible is not shy to explain why that happens with people. Ephesians 2.12 is Paul speaking to believers and explaining to them the different attitude in their heart and the different reality they were living in from when they were not Christians to when they were Christians. And he says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. There is a massive connection between having no God and having no hope. And the connection between those things to having God and having hope is not things you do, but where you place your trust in. And you have both God and hope if you place your trust in Christ. So the question is, where is it that that hope is truly revealed? And again, Paul says his joy that they've received that message, which does give them hope. And it's in verse 6. What they have heard before is the word in the truth, the gospel. If you could boil down the entire message of the gospel to one thing, it is not only a word of truth, but a word of hope. A word of hope that is unbreakable, undefiled, and cannot be lost by those who trust Christ first. And if we start with hope and go back to faith and love, you'll see how radically that changes everything. Think about how faith is changed if you 
understand it as a result of hope. John G. Patton, a very famous missionary, once said that faith is something that you lean your whole weight upon. You can think of your life as leaning your weight upon more and more things, and more and more of those things that are not God fail. And the reason is because they're disappearing, they're transient, they're not going to stay in existence for eternity. And as people lean their weight on more and more unstable things, those things keep breaking apart constantly. But if faith means leaning your whole weight upon something that can support you, and Christ is a sure and steady anchor, then the reality is that your faith in that hope is one that will never leave, and therefore you can lean your whole weight upon it. That's why hope and faith in the Bible are so often connected to each other. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of the things hoped for. And Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have faith because God is faithful. And therefore, he says in Hebrews 10 that faith is literally just a confession of hope. It's explaining where you're leaning your weight upon. And if that is the truth, that we should lean our whole weight upon Christ, think how that doesn't just change your faith, it also changes your love. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. If our salvation rested on the fact that we could go and simply love everyone, we would be between a rock and a very, very hard place. Because we are not people who love naturally. But the result of the gospel is in the same way that our anchor in Christ as hope cannot change. And therefore we want to look in faith at Christ who does not change and whose promise of salvation does not change. Then therefore we can trust that we don't need to behave like we love, but we will naturally respond in love because we can trust that that power will change all of us. The beauty that he is revealing in the believers in Colossae is very simple, which is that God and this gospel he has provided in salvation is so secure and so powerful that it changes all of you. And it doesn't change all of you because you chose to change yourself. It's because he has directed a hope and you towards that hope that is so sure and so strong that you can trust that it will change all of you. It might take time, but as time progresses, it will demonstrate to you as you look at him and see more of his love and beauty and worthiness to be praised that he will naturally not only change you, but change the people around you. And that's the second thing that he really gets into, something that won't take nearly as much of our time as this first point, but something nonetheless that has many things involved that are dramatic, which is the reception of the gospel. The reception of the gospel the reception, the word reception means to be able to receive something. And what Paul is really talking about is not just the way the Colossians received the gospel, but how the whole world has received the gospel. It's interesting that in verse 6, for some reason, Paul just randomly gets distracted from his conversation about how the Colossians have been changed, and he looks out into the whole world, and he says, in the whole world, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. So it's not just lots of people are calling themselves Christians. They are demonstrating that the power of the gospel has taken root in their hearts and it has also changed them. One of the coolest things that I love about um, personally as someone who loves history is that the more you look at history, especially surrounding the time of Christ, you can see that the gospel came at exactly the right time. And God was preparing the world for the gospel in that time. Here's your one-minute history lesson. Hopefully I can keep it in a minute. I'm pretty sure I can. Um, 150 to 200 years before Christ 
the person who was the most powerful person in the world was Alexander the Great. And one of the things that Alexander the Great did was he tried to connect the whole world. Now, he was no means, by no means a Christian, but God did end up using him to make it so that the world was preparing itself for such a way that any message could go out into so many places it could never go before. For the first time ever, there were boats that you could just hire, and you could go so many more places than you could ever have gone before. There were so many more roads created that you as a natural traveler could go out so many more cities than you could have gone before. And not only that, but now you could communicate with so many more people because all over the world, people were learning a similar language that was created called Koine Greek. So now you could either have a translator or go somewhere that spoke a different language and you would still be able to find a common language and be able to communicate with each other. And of course, it's only after this where the world is more connected than ever that the message of Jesus Christ comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He dies, he's resurrected, and now more than ever before, that message can spread all over the world. Paul explains the dilemma that this world would have if that wasn't a reality. In Romans 10, 14 to 15, Paul explains, how will they call on him who have not believed? And how are they to believe if they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And you could even add to Paul's sentiment by saying, how can they even understand the one sent unless they have a road to get there or a boat to get there or a common language to communicate that in? And the reality is that God prepared all of that. And we know he's prepared all of that because even Paul, thousands of miles away in Rome, can say the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing in the gospel. Think about the kind of assurance that you can have by not just looking at yourself, but looking about how the gospel has transformed history. Look at how God has had the power to reorganize the world so that his message could go everywhere he wants it to go. First of all, that's assuring because it's a surety that God can keep all of his promises. Acts 1.9, Christ promised that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, and he's kept that promise. Which means you can be assured that all of his promises, like raising us as dead sinners to life, all of those promises will be kept. But the, also, the, the other thing that he wants you to think about is to think about your position. He turns to the Colossians and he says, look at what God's plan has been in the whole world. And look at yourselves and how he has included you in that plan. You would think that God is so powerful that he could transform the world. But maybe he's not personal enough to connect with me. And he totally flips that by turning to the world and then turning back to you and saying, look how God hasn't forgot about the least of all peoples in the world. Even an insignificant town like Colossae has heard the gospel, and it was not by accident. He says, God sent you the gospel. Because he says in verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras. He said, God's love for you personally, every single one of you, has come in the form of Epaphras. Epaphras was literally a messenger of God. In the same way that the angels came bearing the news about Jesus Christ to the shepherds, Epaphras himself came to you and explained in just as much supernatural grace and just as dramatic a display in the simple message of the gospel that God also loves you. 
Epaphras is as God to you and demonstrates his personal love for you in faithfully communicating the message. And again, think about even how profound that is. We kind of had a perfect illustration of even telephone. Do you know how easy it is to mess up even the smallest of phrases? You could start here and 10 people later you have a totally different message than what you had 10 people ago. Ask yourself the question, do you know how easy it would be to mess up the gospel? To get a detail wrong as it passed from person to person to person throughout the whole world. But it didn't. And there's a reason it did. And it's because of faithful people who were kept faithful by the power of God. God made sure that no matter where the gospel went, it was the same gospel, even in Colossae. Because in verse 7, he says that Epaphras is a beloved fellow brother and a faithful minister of Christ. God preserved his word. It never changed. It never failed. And no matter where it went, the same message from the scriptures was transforming everybody. And God was gracious enough to include you in it and show that he cared about your salvation. He cared about your salvation. Now what we want to do in the couple minutes we have left is to take some of that information. We want it to sit in our hearts and we want to ask ourselves, how should we be thinking differently? I think for so many of us who have grown up in Christian homes, we just take it for granted that we grew up in the church. Do you know how amazing it is do you know how much of a minority you are in growing up with christian parents as much as questioning you about what you're doing or telling you the gospel at every moment might be annoying to you think about the fact that in the same way apophras is being as god to you anyone who's ever told you the gospel is not just a person caring for you it is god himself who cares about you And every time you have rejected that message or thought that that message is worth nothing, then you have rejected God himself coming to your door and telling you that he loves you and he cares for you and he sent his son to die for you. Think about the kind of grace that you have been given that is so different from so many people in the world. If you talk to many adults, even in our church, even in Cornerstone Bible Church, you will see that so many people didn't grow up with Christian parents or didn't grow up with Christian friends or didn't grow up in the church. And nonetheless, God pulled them from where they were, showed them the gospel, they could respond to it. And now many, many more people can see a demonstration of God by God and his power through faithful people. Think about the kind of assurance we're going to have that even 2,000 years ago, that same message has been faithfully preserved perfectly in the word. It has proven itself to be true in its transformation, and it has not changed. And that's because none of God's words ever changed because God himself never changes. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is, and get this, firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That sounds exactly like hope. That is the same kind of definition of the hope that we have laid up in heaven. And the reason that it is secure is because all of God's words are secure and he will preserve them. And why is it that God keeps his word perfectly preserved? It is this, Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement Notice he said encouragement twice. And through encouragement of the scriptures, we 
just like them, might have hope. So as we start in our study in Colossians, I just want to confirm to you, just like Paul was confirming and Epaphras was confirming, that the gospel is true. It does transform. It continues to transform just as 2,000 years ago and beyond it has transformed people. And we have at least two faithful assurances of that from just this opening passage. Number one, we can be assured in the gospel because it is a Christ-centered hope that therefore can never, ever fail or fail to transform us. That's the first. And the second is just as good, which is that we can have assurance in the gospel because it is a powerful and preserved hope that has changed and continues to change the whole world. And as such, it can also powerfully and personally come to change and comfort anyone's heart. And as Paul continues in this amazing letter in Colossians, he's going to expand on that hope more and more and more, and he's going to explain countless more reasons why we can be assured in it, why we can be encouraged in it, and why our lives can change even more profoundly from it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the assurance we can have, not in ourselves and what we do, but knowing that we can obey your commandments and we can love you because you have given us the ability to do that through revealing what you've done in the gospel and letting that transform our hearts. It is not by us, but through Christ who has been revealed to us and given in us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we can recognize that your son was perfect and gave us that perfection. And your son died for us and was punished for our sins so that we would not be punished for our sins, which would be eternal judgment. But instead, both of these things were provided that we may know you and love you forever. In the same way that we could never lose salvation because of your power, Lord, we know that we can never lose hope if we continue in endurance and confidence, knowing that what you have begun in us, you will bring it to completion. Thank you for these things, Lord. Let us meditate upon them. Let us know exactly how they changed our lives in all of our circumstances, in all of our conversations. Help reveal it to us personally that we, each one of us as individuals, would know you and know your gospel and see how it can change our whole lives and our eternal futures. Thank you for this time, Lord, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. So before you guys uh, break off, if you still have your, thanks for the thumbs, Cam, appreciate it. Um, if you guys have your notebooks, what I'm going to do this time is I'm actually going to give you the questions, but I only have two questions. Um, so if you have time for them, I'm going to write down these two questions, and then there'll be at least one person in every group uh, who has the questions for tonight. So these are uh, the questions. Number one, why is the Christian hope so hopeful? Why is the Christian hope so hopeful? And then to add to that, how does that hope change both faith and love in our lives? How does that hope change our faith and love in our lives? Yes, I will say it again. So the question is, why is the Christian hope so hopeful? How does that hope change both faith and love in our lives? So I, I realize now that's two questions, but uh, too late now. Uh, and here's the second question, all right? The second question is this. Why is it so important 
to see what God has done in the gospel, in the world, and today. And I'll say that again because there's lots of details. Why is it so important to see what God has done through the gospel, in the world, and today? It's the questions. So uh, if you guys want to break off into the same place as you were last time, uh, junior high boys in my office, you can always turn up the air conditioning if it's like too uh, warm in there, and then just move the table out to normal. It's not set up, so you guys are just going to have to set it up. Don't worry about uh, messing stuff up in there. It's totally fine. Just do what you got to do. Okay, break. What's up? <laughs>